0: I don't remember exactly how it happened but I'm so glad that it did. It feels like we just sort of stumbled upon it together early in my time as the rector of this church. And then once we came upon it, once we articulated it, well it's as if it has been with us all this time. It wasn't necessarily a new thought but perhaps a new way for us to express a core conviction That is what we're all about as a church. Our mission statement. Sharing in the life of God for the life of the world. As any typical slogan goes, it doesn't say everything that needs to be said, but it does get to the heart of the matter. That we are meant for God. And then as his indwelt people, we are meant for the world. You see... Our God is all about invitation. He invites us in. He doesn't hoard his life or his love. He doesn't keep it for himself. No, it's part of who he is as Trinity. Three persons who from eternity past share their life and love with one another. Indeed, that's what it means to say God is love that God is a community of love, a wellspring of never-ending joy and goodness, and the good news is that he is radically committed to sharing this love with all of us, with all people. I love how our prayer of consecration puts it. That first line we pray as we ready ourselves for the Eucharist, you know how it goes, you hear it every Sunday. Holy and gracious Father, In your infinite love, you made us for yourself. We are created to share in the love that is forever dancing within the life of the Trinity, within the very presence of God himself. What what an absolutely incredible invitation this is. Because the aim of Christianity, we must always remind ourselves, is not getting all your theological ducks in a row. It's not being able to win an argument about your faith. It's not even about making sure your behavior matches a list of moral obligations. No. It's about sharing in the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the life of the world. That's what we're all about here at All Saints Anglican Church. That's what drives our every decision, every ministry program we offer, every evaluation our leaders perform How are we deepening our communal life in God? I like the word thicken. How might we together thicken our communal life in God? Now, of course, it should go without saying that this journey looks differently for every single person here. For we each have our own religious upbringings, our own set of experiences, our own personality profiles our own rules of life, not to mention our own struggles with sin. And that makes this whole endeavor complicated, to say the least. To nurture a community, to share in God's life, as we are always a community that consists of individuals. Individuals whose journeys with God differ in so many ways. But despite this diversity, I have come to realize that the first step we each need to take is one and the same. No matter where you are, what your background is like, what you've experienced, we all share the same critical first step. In fact, it's a step we take every day in our individual journeys with God. And that step is to turn and see that God is good beyond our wildest dreams. Our journey must begin with this step. Because if God is not attractive to us, then we cannot desire God. And our journey ends before it even begins. I would also argue that if God is not attractive to us, if God is not wonderfully beautiful and good in our minds, then we have already imagined a false God. Which means we're not even pointed in the right direction. Now, of course, as any good Anglican should, I realize that whatever God is like, is mystery. I mean we can never with our finite minds adequately grasp the depths of who God is and if your aim is to arrive at a clear and precise notion of God I'm sorry to say you'll never get there and if somehow you do arrive with a neat and clear definition of God you may rest assured it's wrong. (laughs) So please be careful with your formulations and certainties about what God is like. For God is first and foremost mystery. He is beyond our comprehension. But just because God is mystery, that doesn't mean God is completely unintelligible. I mean, there are aspects of God's nature that he reveals to those whom he invites into his presence. Aspects that we can truly begin to taste and see and and understand up to a point. And at the bedrock of these conceptions of God is a portrait of someone so loving So full of goodness and beauty that if we were ever to catch a glimpse of this glory, we would all fall on our faces before the utter otherness of such love and grace. It would knock us over completely. There's a word for this astounding otherness. It's called holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is what angels and archangels and all the company of heaven forever sing as they behold the face of God. Indeed, this vision of God sitting on his heavenly throne is so powerful, so overwhelming, that the young prophet Isaiah freaks out when he sees it. He can't help but to cry out and say, I'm ruined. Woe is me, I'm lost, for my eyes have seen the king of all creation." Not the best advertisement for inviting people to share in the life of God, is it? To watch a teenage boy cower in fear as he beholds the Lord of the universe in all his glory. But I find Isaiah's reaction here to be the norm for most people. For if God were to show up like that, then most Christians would assume, oh my goodness, he's out to get me. Surely he's so harsh and cruel, even capricious at times, that we dare not fall into his hands. That's how we think, so many think, because we are all bent to doubt the love and goodness of God. I see the same thing occurs in our gospel passage with Simon Peter, doesn't it? One morning he's just minding his own business, exhausted from a hard night's work with nothing to show for it. And then this carpenter-turned-teacher shows up and suggests that we put out into the deep waters and throw our nets overboard one more time. Okay, fine, whatever. And then in a way that has never happened before, waves upon waves of flapping fish are caught up in the nets, so full and tight that the netting begins to break, The boats begin to sink. And Peter realizes at this very moment that the glory of the Lord is falling upon him, shining in the most unusual and surprising way. It's heavy. And so, as with Isaiah, to stand in the presence of God is to be brought to your knees. And Peter also cowers at the bottom of the boat, looking up at Jesus with terror in his eyes. Get away from me! Get away from me, Lord. I'm I'm a sinful man. So that even in the face of the goodness of God, just like you and I do, Peter doubts that such goodness could ever be for him. We see that the work of Jesus is just so gracious, but the response of man is to turn and run, to assume that God isn't as good as the miracle suggests. The vision of God in his temple that we saw with Isaiah, it's magnificent, but the response of man is to assume the worst. (laughs) I'm a a dead man. God's out to get me. He really isn't as beautiful as as the vision seems. So Isaiah cries, woe is me. Peter calls out, go away from me, Lord. I wonder then, what is it that you say? When you're face to face with the living God, What assumptions do you make about him? When you hear the Lord inviting you to share in his life, do you hear these words as a threat? Is he out to get you? Or does his holy otherness draw you in? You see, our minds are incredibly efficient at constructing all sorts of false images of God. John Calvin once wrote that Human nature is a perpetual factory of idols, and I would add that among these idols are images of God that are far from good, far from loving. Indeed, there are some conceptions of God that Christians have that truly scare me half to death. To these Christians, if we were to counsel them, just pray, just, just pray to him and all will be well. Well, I'm not so sure. Far too many people have been broken by this kind of advice. (laughs) Think about it. That's because if a false and tyrannical God is operating in a person, then what you're essentially saying is, well, go, go, return to your tyrant. Return to your false God, to the one whom you conceive of as all controlling and lacking of compassion. For if you don't think God is good, if, if you don't see God as pure light and pure love, then yes, you've heard it straight from your pastor's mouth. It might be best for you to stay away from this God for a while, to take a break from praying to this God, or perhaps, if only to beg him to reveal to you new facets of his goodness and his grace. Sort of like with what happened to the Apostle Paul, with the false notions he had of God. Can you imagine? It seemed to God that God, it seemed to Paul that God had called him to kill Christians like a terrorist, a horrific task that he pursued with gusto. That is, until God revealed to him new facets of his grace in the face of Jesus. In our reading today from 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus appeared to him last among the apostles, but that he feels totally unfit even to call himself an apostle because of his persecutions of the church. But... Paul then goes on to say, By the grace of God, I am who I am. His grace toward me has not been in vain. You see, Paul learned that God wasn't out to get him for his persecutions. God was out to restore him from these persecutions and then to invite him to share in his life, and then to enlist him to work for him for the life of the world. God, in his goodness, redeems and restores even a terrorist. And neither was God out to get Isaiah. Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, he says. But even in that moment, when Isaiah considers himself dead, God reaches down and touches his lips and makes him a prophet. You see, Isaiah is wrong. He isn't lost. He's found. For God is not threatening him, but inviting him to dive deeper into his life, deeper into his love. And neither was God out to get Simon Peter. Leave me alone, for I am a sinner, Peter says. But instead... Jesus invites Peter to be a disciple, to play a crucial role in his project to bring the life of heaven to bear upon the earth. Leave you alone, Peter? Never. Not even if you deny me three times in my most needed hour. God is too good and too loving to leave you alone. His desire is always to restore you because in his infinite love, he made you for himself to share in his life. No, he's not going to leave you alone. That's how it was with Peter. That's how it was with Isaiah and Paul. That's how it is with you as well. God is inviting you each and every day to turn and see that he is good beyond your wildest dreams. That he isn't out to get you. That he isn't aloof and unconcerned about what's happening in your life. But rather that he wants to meet you in every conversation that you have. He wants to meet you in every face that you see. In every thought and emotion that comes your way. And yes, even in the suffering that you have to endure. In all these things and more, God is inviting you in. To taste and see that he is good. To take another step toward a deeper life with God, to take another step deeper into the life of that community in which he dwells. And so, no, you don't need to cower in fear. You don't need to run and hide. You simply need to be open to this wonderful invitation, ready to be surprised and eager to destroy any false notion of God that keeps you from him. And so let that be our prayer this day and every day. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. Help us to not only believe that, but to know that deeply within us. We beg you, Lord, help us to taste and see that you are good beyond all measures. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.